welcome to AdvantageReferee.com, software and services to help you become the referee everyone wants of their game. Making the right call can change your life. This is Richard Every, your host. She was a national championship college player who went on to be co-founder of the hugely successful women's Raleigh Venom team, captaining them and lifting four national championships. She then shifted to refereeing and referee coaching, which is making a mark beyond the U.S. borders, being selected for the first World Rugby Women's High Performance Camp in Stellenbosch. From Virginia, now living in Raleigh, North Carolina, Amanda Cox, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, Richard. Glad to be here. I heard a rumor that you grew up in colonial Williamsburg and that part of your family <laughs> happened to be glassblowers, blacksmiths, and uh, I guess a spinster? I'm not really sure what the exact title would be, but spinster could be it. <laughs> My aunt carded and spun wool. So, yes, and my grandfather, who was a glassblower, is just an amazing artist. You can see his stuff in museums all over the world. And you were dressing up as well? You were getting dressed as uh, oh. peasants or gentry? Yes, yes. So I also worked in Colonial Williamsburg, and my job was I I sewed with the 18th century stitches. So we sat in this house and we pretended to be the Getty Girls, which was the family who had originally lived <laughs> in that house. And people would come through on tour and you would have to speak to them. It was really good experience at that time, I think, to just have to sit in front of people you don't know and talk about something because, you know, made you nervous and it's probably good for the rest of my life. But yeah, it was fun at the time. I got to hang out with my friends <laughs> in costume. That's really crazy. I mean, I'm not, uh, I'm not the biggest history fan and uh, I know some of the family I have here in America, they dragged me off to Colonial Williamsburg once and I was <laughs> wondering why, what, what we were doing there. But uh, of course, I didn't see the glass blowing. I'm sure that would have impressed me to no end. Yeah, my grandfather actually blew glass in Jamestown. So there's not just Williamsburg, but you can also visit historic Jamestown and historic Yorktown, where you will find hundreds and hundreds of people in costume all the time every day. So yeah, I just grew up thinking it was normal to put on a costume and go to work. <laughs> So when you were living there, besides wanting to be a <laughs> peasant or a blacksmith or a spinster or a glass blower, what, what did you want to be when you were a kid? I don't know. I guess like every kid, I briefly wanted to be an astronaut. And then I probably thought I was going to be a doctor. And then by the time I got in high school, I just was already developing a pretty logical mind. And so decided to do what would make me a decent amount of money and was also sort of came easily to me, which was biology. So. I ended up going to Virginia Tech and getting a degree in biology and a minor in chemistry. <laughs> it's funny you should say astronaut because I think uh, Alambra Nieves also said that she wanted to be an astronaut. <laughs> so maybe when, when you guys get together in Stellenbosch, you can talk about flying to the moon. <laughs> yeah, I think I think in the 80s, you know, just what was on TV and what you saw and what you were exposed to, that great movie came out. Was it called Space Camp or something? So probably impacted what everybody wanted to be. I don't know. I dropped it pretty quickly. It's too much school and too much work for me. So in the mid nineties, you went to Virginia Tech and that was where you discovered rugby. How did that all come about? Whew. Yeah. So went to college and my parents, I was the first person in my family to go to college, um, to a four year college, I guess. And my parents wanted me to sort of buckle down and really study hard and be successful. So 
they did not want me playing any sports. Sports had been a main focus in high school. And so made pretty clear to me, you're going to go to college and you're in college to, to study. So I went and I did my first semester, blew it out of the water, came home for Christmas. and was like, mom, dad, there's got to be something else because I just can't study this much. So they were like, all right, we'll go back and sort of look around, see what you see. So when I looked at the landscape at the university, there were varsity sports and there were club sports. And I wanted to play a club sport that didn't have a varsity attached. They got more money and more support from the university. And they were sort of, because there was no varsity, they were the team for that sport. So that pretty much left me with lacrosse or rugby. And the rugby team was really, really good. And they were going to nationals. And lacrosse, you needed to buy all that equipment. So for a first-year college student, that investment of money was a huge consideration. So went to the rugby meeting, and I met these you know, these women, you know, they're like, hi, how are you? Hey, come play rugby. But just watching them interact, I was like, wow, these people really like each other and like they hang out and they're supportive and it just seemed like a group that I wanted to belong to. So that's it. I bought a mouth guard and went to my first practice. <laughs> <laughs> so you did a major in biology and a minor in chemistry. And uh, whilst you were studying, was that when you worked at Ben and Jerry's? <laughs> ben and Jerry. Or was it off? Yeah, Ben and Jerry's was my first, I say real job, because my father was a business owner. So I worked for him actually, when I was younger. But then sometime like after my senior year of high school, I was like, all right, that's enough working for dad, I need to work for somebody who's real. Because you don't perceive your parents as real people, I guess, when you're that age, or I don't know. So I went out to Ben and Jerry's, and I ended up getting hired there as a, um, you know, scoopologist pretty technical with the way I formed my cones. Um, it's really a work of art. But yeah, so then I did that for like two or three summers. And they were opening a new store about the same time I was graduating from college. They're like, hey, what do you think about small business management? And I was like, oh, my gosh, that sounds wonderful. Because <laughs> I'm inherently just a little bit lazy. And if you lay something at my feet, I'm probably just going to try it out. So instead of doing biology or chemistry, I opened an ice cream store and I went to Scoop University in Vermont and somewhere I have a certificate. So <laughs> I'm a professional when it comes to You're saying that Ben and Jerry are actually real people? Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah, absolutely. I met them. Wow. So yeah. I have a question though. I mean, if, if you're working in a ice cream store, many of us love ice cream. Were you allowed to eat as much ice cream as you wanted? I wouldn't say I was allowed to eat as much ice cream as I wanted, but certainly I did eat a great deal of ice cream. But it's funny because when you're around it all day and the smell in an ice cream store is really, really this overwhelmingly sweet smell because of the waffle cones, mm -hmm. you end up not wanting ice cream very much. So <laughs> you get a little taste here, a little taste there, you know, uh, you might take a milkshake home after work or whatever. But yeah, funny story. When I was in high school, my boss, um, I would do the opening shift with him. And he, that's when I started drinking coffee because he would drink coffee. Well, he showed me this little trick with your coffee to put the vanilla ice cream in there to sweeten it up. <laughs> this was awesome, right? Except then I started gaining weight. And I was like, why? I don't understand, Dale. I don't eat any ice cream. I really don't eat it. Why am I putting on weight? And he's like, uh, Amanda, your coffee is mostly ice cream every single morning. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> now I drink my coffee black. So then you went to Raleigh, North Carolina as a... Headhunter. During your headhunting years, you had to headhunt yourself? 
Yeah, that's correct. So I took a job down here as a headhunter. The market absolutely tanked. And then my boss came in. I think I'd been there like two or three weeks. And he was like, look, the market's really not looking good. I'm not saying we're not going to have a place for you because things could turn around. But my, my spidey sense is tingling here. And he's like, I want you to start working in your field and trying to headhunt yourself a job. He's like, do your resume, start spending your time in the office making calls and see if you can find something for yourself so that if we have to let people go, you've got somewhere to go. So I was like, oh man, that's pretty serious. So uh, that's exactly what I did. I mean, he helped me with my resume, started making calls, got a, got a temporary job over at GlaxoSmithKline, which was like, I don't know, a 10 minute drive. So pretty good deal. Yeah. And then I was working in my field and my parents were finally like, oh, she's successful. Yay, we did our job. <laughs> so that, it, was, <laughs> it was a good move for me um, from a family standpoint. <laughs> yeah, GlaxoSmithKline. They actually happen to be the sixth largest uh, pharmaceutical company in the world. And uh, so you were doing testing there and eventually you ended up in product complaints? I did. Yeah, product complaints, working with the FDA, counterfeit stuff that goes goes to market. It's pretty interesting. I really enjoyed that. So what are the kind of things that people complain about? Oh, they complain <laughs> about all, all, all manner of things and they will send in all manner of things in, a, in packages. So I had to get all of my shots and um, you wore gloves when you opened the mail because you never knew what they, <laughs> what they were sending in for you pretty astounding actually the things that people complain about it was eye-opening actually and it, it changed the way that I act because if I get a product that's subpar now I'll just be like oh let me let me flip a call to product complaints and see a lot of times big companies will replace things especially if it's their fault and it's not much hassle so good huh. life lesson yeah 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 huh. so in Raleigh you established the woman's team Raleigh Venom uh, you So you're one of the co-founders. Uh, you just decided one day, hey, let's start a rugby team. So basically, that's what we decided. We were all playing for Eno River, which is a team out of Durham, um, and they still exist to this day. Their coach and some of us had just fundamental philosophy differences. I mean, I had come from Virginia Tech. Jamie Jones had come out of the UVA program, University of Virginia. So we knew each other. And we both were used to playing pretty high level, pretty serious rugby. And we were just like, this is social rugby and this isn't what we want to be doing. So we approached Raleigh men and we were like, hey, we want to have a women's team. You've got fields. And that was a major problem with Eno River. They were playing in a park. And Raleigh was sort of skeptical. I think there was still women's rugby was still sort of scorned maybe at, at that time by, by some people. And they were like, well, we don't want a team associated with us that's just going to party. And Jamie and I were like, you clearly don't know the two of us. We're, <laughs> we're coming to play rugby and we're going to make a team. And we did. You know, we started out with seven women. We, ooh, that very year, brought home a sevens trophy. And then we went on to play 15s. We, we went to the Ed and Sandy Lee tournament the first year. And uh, we won it, I guess. We weren't technically allowed to win it because we hadn't been a team for a whole year. So we... We had to step aside and couldn't couldn't take the trophy or whatever, but we would have won it. And then we went on the next year to win it and went to nationals and boom, bing, bang, boom. Everything we could have hoped for. So, <laughs> great. And uh, so you won four national championships, 2005, 6, 9, and 11. Were you coaching as well? Were you a player coach? No. no. I never I never straight into coaching. I, 
especially when I was playing, I, I'm more likely to to do do something for somebody than than to try and take the time to to teach them. I think was the problem at that at that stage for me. Yeah. Coaching wasn't for me. It was never something I looked at and was like, oh yeah, I'm going to be really good at this. Hmm. So it took a lot of growing up, and honestly, having kids to learn to be a teacher and to enjoy teaching. Yeah. So you went on and had a brief refereeing career, but injuries prevented you from uh, running? Yeah, probably the darkest, hardest time of my life was um, realizing I would never be an elite athlete again, that your your entire worldview just flips on its head. So yeah, and it was so bad. I wasn't able to take care of the kids or really get up in the morning and have a full day before I had to just rest, which is crazy. So sent me into a massive depression. It's strange because everybody around you is like, oh, you're, you're the strongest person I know. Like, it'll be fine. You don't even know what to do. Taught me a lot. And I try to pay a lot of attention now to, to people who are going through things because, or just to talk to people in a different way, because it wasn't something you couldn't look at me in the grocery store and say, oh, this, this woman's obviously struggling. People would, would see me and be like, hey, Amanda, you look great. Congratulations. Kids look great. Yeah, everything going good. And I'd just be like, not not, not really. Like, I can't really get through the day. And people are like, oh, okay, well, you look fantastic. Yeah, I wish that someone had just been like, hey, maybe we need a little therapy here to get you over the hump. But, you know, luckily, Mike Cobb, who was my referee coach, because he had been through, I think, a knee issue that, that ended his career. And so he was just like, take your time, grieve, like work with the doctors, do your physical therapy. When you get back to the point where you can go and stand on the pitch, you know, for a full match, you're going to be ready. And so we just took that time and we used that time to really develop my mind and um, clarify what I was seeing, which we'd been working on anyway, because I'd been out of the game at that point for maybe a year with my, with my pregnancy and then the delivery and everything. So yeah, he, he supported me a lot and just by not telling me <laughs> that I was strong and I was going to beat it by just being support being like, I get it. I hear you. Keep moving forward. Yeah, Mike Cobb, what a wonderful person. He was a little bit ahead of his time. Well, actually, very much ahead of his time, you know, because he came through as a performance reviewer. And, you know, he, he wasn't really that performance reviewer person. He was more like a, he's more a referee coach, a support person, also obviously a great friend of mine. And uh, he got you involved in uh, referee coaching? Yes. So as soon as I found out I was pregnant with my third daughter, he was like, all right, well, let's, let's use this time wisely, you know, before you're able to come back and that'll be referee coaching. And he's like, eventually, I think you're going to make a fantastic performance reviewer. <laughs> you know, we, well, we would break down my game. So, you know, we had that relationship. He knew what, what I was capable of in that realm. But um, yeah, now then the world tilted on its axis, didn't it? And performance reviewing went away. So this thing that was sort of my eventual trajectory doesn't really exist in its same format. So it's interesting that that's what he saw for me as an end game. And now I'll always be a coach, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I met you at a uh, referee camp, to me, you immediately stood out as someone with uh, superior game knowledge. What were your goals when you started out referee coaching? I mean, uh, were you just taking it one day at a time? Or were you looking at uh, going all the way? No, I think for me, initially, it was sort of a kind of therapy. You know, it was a, a way to like stay in the game because the game had given me me so much. And I thought about 
player coaching at that point. And I think Cobb knew that. We had worked together for, I don't know, year, year and a half at that point. And um, he said to me, like, the referee community doesn't deserve to lose you. And those are the words that really, <laughs> like, stuck out and motivated me to stay in the referee community because the referee community needs to grow and it needs that support of coaches, I think, much more than the player community does. And so I just started working my tail off with him. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea, really. But here I am. I, I didn't have goals. And I remember when he took me to the first big high performance thing, I guess, as a coach. And I was just, you feel a little bit overwhelmed and you feel like you don't belong and you just have to get over that. And I guess I spoke enough that you that you noticed me. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> I think all of us at some point in our life have experienced that situation where we are in a room and we don't know if we should say something or not or hoping that somebody won't say well what do you think Richard and I, <laughs> it's like how small can you make yourself not to be noticed you know yeah. it's very difficult yeah. at, at the same time though it's important to be the person in the room that everybody's not noticing because I think we have too many people in in the referee community that sort of take up too much space in a room absolutely listening is a very key skill that uh I think all of us are still working on. Yep, absolutely. Right. So you've been involved with Major League Rugby since we kicked off. And uh, obviously, you know, we've been doing a lot of work about creating that environment and creating the group and trying to create an environment of collaboration and working together. And there's such a lot of information that I think all of us are taking every day, every week, that, you know, we as a group, we're developing new ideas but you're also working with uh, referees that are starting out. How, how does that translate to when you're working with a new referee? <laughs> Where do you start? It's something I struggle <laughs> with all the time. Where do you start? And I think when, when I was first starting out, there was this idea that you didn't give a referee too much information because it, it overwhelms them. And I think that's cheating some referees. So depending on the ref and, and how, how I'm working with them and what kind of conversation they're engaging me in, I just give them all the information um, that they're asking for because I never like that as an answer. Like, oh, yeah, there's there's three more layers on this, but, but you're not ready for those layers yet. <laughs> so um, yeah. I don't know. And the, the whole thing with MLR and the calls and um, the idea of creating a referee team that works well and is very supportive. That's something that I carry back home and try to recreate the support groups, I think, um, in my local. It's interesting, though, because, you know, even with the elite referees, we pretty much might only be working on one thing from game to game. Yeah, and that's hard. That's hard with the newer refs to convince them that, that really, if you have a focus and then you go out there and, and you, you do your match and we're only going to talk about or I'm only going to coach you on those things that you're working on. We're not going to talk about the 20 calls that you may or may not have gotten right or wrong. More about how's your movement, how's your how's your whistle signal timing going, like that kind of stuff and the overall trends, right, in whatever that your focus was. Yeah, it's something we're still developing definitely on a local level. So we've been talking about uh, individual performance plans and game plans and I know that, uh, you know, with yourself and Amelia Luciano going down to the high performance camp in Stellenbosch, that uh, you've been looking into developing that with her. Yes. Can you elaborate on it? And it's something that we only really started 
working with this year. What are your thoughts around it and how, how to develop that? This is the first time I've been introduced to a development plan and sort of a process that I think has enough legs to be successful. So I feel like previously in the United States, somebody's just handed you a pile of forms and been like, this is what a development plan looks like. And then you go away and you fill this thing out and nobody really looks at it or you're supposed to go back and look at it, but you weren't really sure what you were filling out in the first place. And, and I don't think that the structures were exactly right there. And then just from work, I kind of have a negative idea of development plans because I felt like, all right, it's February. We're going to fill these things out. Somebody's going to give me a raise. We're not going to look at this again for another year. So I really like spent some time with Chris Pollock just going over the idea of the development plan and then how it fits in with the game plan. And that's what I really like about it is you've got, this is where I am. This is what it will look like if, I, if I'm going to be successful. And in order to get from point A to point B, these are my two or three key focus areas. And each of those have action items and measurables. But then the way that you create your game plan so that your game plan reflects the focus areas. And then the way that all goes into the, to the review system, which is a video review system advantage that, we, that we're using. So you're just seeing it over and over and over again. And it just brings your mind back to it. And then you're working with the same coach over and over and over. And we're all working. We've all got the same stuff in front of us. I just think it has much more of a chance of being successful than things we've tried previously. So I'm excited about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think we're, we're all excited about it. It's interesting because, you know, a lot of, a lot of the world out there is getting automated. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's becoming less human, a lot of the things. And I think the process that we, we have in place here uh, could actually probably work across the corporate world too, you know, where you have your performance plan, your current reality, your success goals, professional development plan, so that you're allowing people to reflect on who they are, where they are, and what they would like to achieve. So improving yourself step by step when you're comparing yourself to yourself it's a pretty interesting way to go, you know. I think it, it could work in many sports and maybe in yeah. just in life in general. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Probably need to do one for my coaching uh, career. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we should do one for ourselves. <laughs> After this conversation, I'm going to go and do that. <laughs> Great. Send it to me. I'll review that for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so you managed uh, Women's Premier League in 2018. Can you share the structure, process, uh, what do you think worked well and what you might change in the future? Yeah. Women's Premier League in the United States, managing that was probably the highlight of my career to date. It was such an honor, I guess, to be involved in that. The structure was pretty simple. I think we used nine referees and six referee coaches, and we used the advantage. So we'd have four matches a weekend, and then the referees would have to go into advantage review they do a self-review of their video and then the referee coaches will come after them and you know bolster that review uh there would be a conversation between the referee and the coach they would pick clips from their game that they wanted to share with the group then every wednesday night we would have a conference call with the group i was in the background watching all of those matches and definitely one thing that i would like to be able to do better in the future is giving the coaches more feedback on their their review process but i just don't think with one person managing it there's enough hours in the day to to do all of that 
what we would have the we'd have the call on Wednesdays. Everybody would be on the call. They would present the clips, and we would try to get on the same page with different ways that we're going to handle particular situations in the match, whatever it may be that they had encountered that they thought was worth bringing to the group. And then I would give feedback to the coaches. So there was a continual loop to the team coaches about what the referee team was doing, how we were going to interpret something, which I also think was amazing. And uh, that was a great, great part of the process. A lot of the team coaches for those women's teams had positive feedback. It wasn't something that they had been able to do before is approach the referees, specifically me, I guess, as the manager and say, I don't understand why you're calling this this way and have that conversation so that they can adjust their game plans for the, for the next week. So yeah, it was really, yeah. I was very happy with the process and I was happy that, that you sort of allowed me to pick a smaller team, I think, than the original plan. Cause it was important to me that everybody be really invested and we got a 10 week competition and I felt like if you did less than four games, you wouldn't really be invested in the process. And I think we achieved that. So. Absolutely, and obviously the team coaches having access to to the reports creates a, another level of transparency and uh, accountability for everybody. Absolutely, and that that's a big thing when pick the team and then moving through the year was just reminding everybody this is a safe space. Like you're super vulnerable. You're you're having to review yourself and put your put your thoughts about things out there where the rest of the team can see it. Yeah. So it was important that our group and our team allow each other to fail. You know, like it had to be a space where it's okay to be wrong about a clip and then you have to just pick your ego up off the floor. You've got your support structure right there. Hopefully they're helping you along to learn whatever it is that you need to learn and not ridiculing you for being wrong. So, yeah, I think we achieved all of that. I was really happy with it. It was really amazing to see that, uh, you know, obviously with the structure in place that you could see the referees and the referee coaches, how they would grow with the process. And we, we always talk about, oh, yeah, you should have a growth mindset, but it's really not that easy. It's, it's not easy to really necessarily learn from your mistakes and it's not easy to go to be, you know, to learn something from other people's successes. So it's all a work in progress, but uh, it feels that, we might be going in the right direction, you know, and I think that you did a great job creating a great environment for the Women's Premier League and uh, excited to see where it goes in the future. <laughs> yeah, me too. I think it'll be, be really great. <laughs> so you've been selected to go to the World Rugby High Performance Camp in Stellenbosch. It's uh, in May and it's the first one that World Rugby are doing for women's match officials and it's going to be facilitated by Alhambra Nieves. Alain Roland and Chris Pollock. Uh, do you have anything that you're anticipating? Do you have goals? And is this a launch pad mm. to maybe where? Yeah, I I really, I don't know. I have to just start by saying, like, again, it's an amazing honor. I think for me as a referee, once I was pretty much sidelined and I knew I would never run again, I think it never occurred to me that you could still participate in a sport in a high-performance environment. And so, you know, coming coming from a team where we were very focused, national championships, I mean, same thing in high school, state championships, whatever, like I was just always sort of at the top. Um, and in that high performance environment, it's where I thrive. It's what I love to be a part of. I don't think I really expected to be able to do that as a referee coach. So, yeah, I'm just thrilled to get 
to go and be a part of that. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if you're aware, it's an all women's camp this time. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really, really, really interested to watch that dynamic because refereeing rugby in general, since I've been a part of of the team, you know, the women's team, it's very male dominated now. Everything I'm involved in, everything I go to, it's mostly men. SERS does this thing every year where they have a tournament and they staff it with only or primarily women. We'll usually have one or two support support men there um, to do some referee coaching, but it's a it's a development situation. And the the vibe is is so amazing. It's great to be a part of it and just watch the women sort of come out of their shells and feel very very comfortable asking questions and being in that group and in that environment. So. I'm interested to see if it will be the same going to Stalinbosch or if that high performance environment will still keep people a bit in their shells. So very much looking forward to it. I know I'm going to learn so much from Allie and Elaine and Chris and meeting other referee coaches who are women who are performing at the same level as me. That's going to be, that's exciting to get a peer group. Yeah, so. absolutely. Absolutely. And just to obviously build that network is really yeah. Rugby is so interesting all over the world. It's the same game, but it's got different culture. Right. Amanda, some might say that you, you know, you obviously rocketed to the top very quickly as a referee coach. But, you know, if you look at the big picture, you've been involved in rugby since 1995. So, you know, there's a long, long history and knowledge that you absorb over the years, you know. So with your achievements, obviously, it's easy to say that you're a scholar of the game. I mean, we all know that. But... uh a question for a woman's referee starting today, what advice would you give to them considering the landscape in the USA at the moment? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think I might have the same advice for, for any referee, sort of regardless of their gender identity, but be prepared to, to fail and, and be okay with that because that's how we get better. You have to look at that as an opportunity for improvement. And then secondly, the resources are out there now. Like The information is out there. You've got to work to find it. Like it's, it's all there. It's online. You can watch videos and you can do all of these things now that you couldn't 10 years ago. So if you really want to be great, you've got to put in the hard work, but it's all there for you. This is a great time to become involved. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of, a lot of resources are at your fingertips, but uh, like you said, you, you just got to put the effort in, you put the effort in, uh, and, you know, the community with everything being online has uh, actually gotten a lot closer over the last couple of years. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I mean, like, you know, what you did with WPL where, you know, you have coaches from all over the country working with referees from all over the country. Yeah, that was a great success. We had 11 different referee societies involved in the WPL. And that was something I was really proud of that we were able to to do that because I feel like every the high performance environment has sort of its own maybe pros and cons depending on how you look at it but the more referee societies that we can involve and have sort of a trickle down effect with those theories of the game i think is a positive thing absolutely man i'm really excited uh, that you're part of the rugby referee group and uh, look forward to working with you in major league rugby and seeing where we go forward in uh, usa and all the best for your trip down to Stellenbosch in South Africa. It should be very exciting. Thank you very, very much for being on the show. And uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll have you back in the near future. Yep. Thanks a lot, Richard. I appreciate it. Thanks. Bye now. Bye. Check out AdvantageReview.com. 
software and elite consulting services to help you become the referee everyone wants on their game. Thank you for joining us. This is Richard Everett.